Hey, thanks for listening. I'm Allie Krug, and I'm an epidemiologist, a freelancer, a hockey mom, and I just went with my team to go get our first COVID vaccination dose after several days of chasing doses. Um, <laughs> attempt three, we won, and uh, we went to Walgreens. So the full story is in this episode. Why I decided to get vaccination, even though I've already had COVID, and why I decided it was the right um, move for our team, and just some thoughts around vaccination for adults and kids in general, and for those who, like me, have a lot of questions and overthink things, um, ways to think about it, um, ways to frame risk, and ways to um, reach a final conclusion about whether or not vaccination is the right answer for you, and if you end up agreeing intellectually, it's the right answer for you, um, because the benefits far outweigh the risks, then how to hold yourself to it. And then how to deal with anxiety afterwards, which in my case uh, means eat well, sit out in the sun, um, find something to laugh at, and then come back in and look at um, injury statistics and lifetime risks of dying by uh, lightning or a car accident, and then record a podcast. So the result is what you'll hear next. So I hope that you find it informative, interesting, and uh, helpful. And if you have questions, please let me know. I think all questions are good. Thank you so much. Hey, so it's Monday the 19th. It is uh, just before 2 p.m. here on the East Coast, and I am um, trying to shift my focus to work and finding that I'm very distractible and having a brief bout of, um, I would say it's calming down, but it started out as some anxiety (laughs) following my COVID vaccine. Um, And so I thought it would be worthwhile to go into why reasonable people, even epidemiologists, who believe strongly in vaccine and vaccination as the way out of the pandemic and just vaccination in general, could possibly have anxiety after getting something that I've been waiting so long for. I wasn't even eligible until this week. And in all states right now, anybody 16 and over can get a COVID vaccine. I've been waiting for this time a long time. actually chased the vaccine twice last week. Wasn't able to get um, it because uh, only Moderna, which is 18 and over, was available. And I had my son with me and he needed the 16 and over Pfizer. So um, we chased it twice. Um, we lost twice, and, and uh, we ended up getting an appointment at Walgreens um, for today. So we're both vaccinated. Dose one is done, and I'm having anxiety. So how in the world could an epidemiologist have anxiety? Well, I'm here to just fess up that it is true. It's possible. Uh, people who overthink things um, can very easily have anxiety, and we've created, um, even among people who didn't previously overthink things regarding their health, we've created a culture of, uh, you know, normalizing being a hypochondriac and potentially um, more people are overthinking every single little twinge and feeling because A, we've asked them to. We've asked them to not go anywhere if they have symptoms of any kind. And B, they're interested in taking care of their health or, you know, not passing COVID if they've got it uh, to somebody in their house. So perfectly reasonable people are um, being, I would say, encouraged to shift into a mindset that might not ultimately be all that health promoting um, long term for them. Um, And by that, I mean, anxiety is not a great place to stay. 
So if you're prone to anxiety anyway, you know that you want to get the vaccine, you're still worried about it, you're still on the fence, you still threaten to, uh, to say no at the very last second, which you can do. You can always walk out of the pharmacy at the last second and say, you know what, no thanks, I, got it. I need another day to think about this. You're not alone. Even, even I um, was quite capable of being somewhat irrational today. So um, I think I wanted to cover just a few things. Um, I'll try to stay as organized as possible but I hope you find this interesting. So number one, if you're thinking through vaccination, the, the question, yes or no. Um, so why get the vaccine? And then we'll get into kind of risks versus benefits. And the more interesting thing that actually made me just kind of laugh out loud is um, risks versus risk, because I think that's the better way to look at the world you live in right now is um, we're, we're just kind of weighing all kinds of risks. Um, yes, you can say the vaccine is a benefit, definitely. Um, but if you're in a, a mode where you are concerned about some incremental risk that getting vaccinated introduces when you're currently healthy and you're walking into the pharmacy and you're about to do something, choose to do something and put something in your body that wasn't there before, it's reasonable to think that there is some risk associated with that. So I will actually allow myself to go with you into the arena of risk versus risk and we'll explore that a little bit. Um, so let's start off with why get the vaccine. So for adults, um, I think that, you know, age is the first thing to look at. Um, and you've probably heard from enough people that COVID is a very age-sensitive disease as far as severity. Um, I've heard lots of people say they've never really seen any infectious illness behave quite this way with quite the hockey stick curve that goes up dramatically um, with age. And so it's just, it's very, very clear that um, it's age associated. And then on top of age, you have other things um, that complicate your risk calculus. So if you do have a chronic condition, if you have diabetes, you know the list, uh, asthma, um, those are some of the more common ones. If you're overweight um, or obese, you're not alone, 75% of Americans are, um, then you might consider that your risk profile is suggestive that the vaccine would be a really super good idea for you. Um, and I'm going to go uh, out on a limb and say, even if you are thinking that you might be willing to get one dose, but you're really worried about that second dose syndrome of you know having more muscle pain and, and headaches and things like that, then give yourself that out. Just go and get the first dose. And right now it's very easy to get. Uh, you can actually, uh, here in Virginia, you can walk into um, vaccination clinics and get it. You can make appointments at Walgreens and CVS. I'm sure that in your area, you could look around and find, um, and in very short order, get yourself a, an appointment for a vaccine. So I think I would do that. If you were on the fence, I would make an appointment so that you're likely to stick with it versus just, oh, I'll go to the walk-in clinic and I'll just go Tuesday if I have time. Um, don't leave yourself an out, but, but take that step of making an appointment um, because living in indecision is also anxiety inducing and I, I don't recommend that. So if you're convinced intellectually that you think the vaccine is a good idea for you, that the risks um, are far outweighed by the benefits for the groups I just talked about, then make an appointment and just decide to do it. And like I said, just at least get the first dose. That is going to bring your protection to about 80% it looks like in the real world. Um, and then depending on how you feel, uh, you may find that, hey, you know, I'm actually kind of relieved to have at least one dose in me and I'm good with the possibility of having some reaction for 24 hours after the second dose. 
plan your life uh, around that second dose, you know, get it on a Friday so you have the weekend or, you know, ask your employer in advance if you can have the day off um, after that second dose. Um, you may find that they are quite willing to work the schedule around you uh, so that you do have that relief for the second dose because knowing that the workforce is fully vaccinated is a good thing for the employer. So um, I would just say there's lots of ways to approach this and just because the U.S. is pushing two doses for everybody first doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right answer for you. Um, If getting one dose um, is dependent on you leaving the second dose as a question mark, I'm good with that. Uh, I think that it's important for people who are at high risk for serious disease to get that first dose at least um, and maybe get more confident. Now when Johnson & Johnson um, comes back online, and I'm sure it will, um, it may have some uh, age restrictions, um, it may have some subgroup restrictions, but I'm, I'm certain it'll come back online. It's the same platform that's been used for Ebola. Um, I think they're just going to better understand who's at risk for clotting and how to treat it, um, kind of like the uh, review of anaphylaxis that they went through, um, such as that, you know, it happens within 15 minutes and we know how to handle that. Just make sure you uh, have an EpiPen and, and also people who are sensitive to vaccine ingredients um, are aware now, uh, more so than they were initially. Okay, so that's point number one. I think for adults, um, you heard the risk groups, uh, you know the risk groups. If you have a chronic condition, if you smoke, even I would add that in, um, diabetes, asthma, obesity, heart disease, um, you know, really any chronic condition, but those are the most prevalent in this country. Make a point to schedule your first dose at least. And then secondly, I did bring our son, our 16-year-old, with me. And I gave that a lot of thought because he's healthy, he's strong, he's an athlete. Um, so, so why? Why did I bring him? Well, I'd like him to feel free to have a life. Um, we moved here six months ago. He's really not been able to get together with other people. People are concerned, um, you know, are sensitive to uh, transmission um, teens from an infectious disease standpoint they behave a lot more like adults they're going to aerosolize as much as adults his lungs are big just like an adult's um he's tall so his head is literally at the same height in a room as other adults um and I, i just think that it's a good idea to provide that extra level of comfort when you're around other adults that your teen has had at least one dose um in addition we're hoping to see family members um who are older this summer and I'd like to give them that added security of us being vaccinated. So on the whole, um, to encourage, you know, the transition back into real life and normal life and less, you know, mask hyper-focus um, when around other people, especially outside, I think it's a good thing for, um, for teens to get vaccinated. They are going back to school four days a week here in Virginia Beach starting the 27th um, for Option 1 students, and those are the people who chose face-to-face so another good reason to, um, you know, just give teachers that extra layer of protection and uh, security is getting the teens vaccinated. It's no cost. Um, literally, it's easy process. You just give your, um, your name, uh, where you live, and, uh, you know, some demographic stuff so they can use it for tracking. And your uh, insurance, if you don't have insurance, it's also okay. Uh, I should mention that I had COVID. Um, That's another layer to consider. So in the adult bucket, um, I already had COVID and that was five months ago and I did get my antibodies checked and I did have, it looks like good antibodies, although uh, there was really no way for me to bracket my antibody response um, because the Quest diagnostic test um, provides an index 
And that index is really only useful for me testing myself over time. So I can see what number I was, you know, four and a half months in, and then I'm gonna actually do it again uh, two weeks after my first dose, but a week before my second dose to see what, I, what happened after the vaccine. Yeah, I'm a complete nerd. Um, so yes, I'm gonna go do that. I will report in on it. Uh, if you're listening and you're curious, and this would be interesting to you, although I don't know that it would be relevant to other people, um, but my index was 11.21, but again, I have almost no idea what that means. Um, the index goes from one to 150, but in some research that I looked for regarding the uh, approval, the FDA approval for this particular test, um, it looked like 11 was very good. It looked like they actually didn't find many um, indices above 11. But again, the range is, if it's possible, goes up to 150. So if anybody, any of the five people who listen to this podcast have gotten the Quest um, antibody test, and it's currently the one that you can order online, you can pay directly for it, and the code is 34499. If you've gotten it, and if you have an index that you'd like to share, there's a way for you to contact me through um, this platform. You can also go to um, abcmedicalwriting.com, abcmedicalwriting.com, and shoot me a note through the contact page. So I'd be curious to know what you're finding, what your research says. So yes, I've had COVID. I do have detectable antibodies. Um, I did not bother to get the T-cell test yet. Um, the reason I got vaccinated is because in people who had very severe COVID, um, if you listen to my Germinal Centers episode, People who had severe COVID, they actually, uh, on autopsy, they looked at their lymph nodes and they um, bisected them and they actually went looking for germinal centers, which are little pop-up like hive minds uh, for B-cell training. So those B-cells can actually uh, go through what's called um, somatic hypermutation to create a whole bunch of options for uh, the potential uh, mutations in spike protein. So the B-cells create their own mutations and various ways for the antibodies to fit a potential down the road mutation in spike. And then if you get exposed to COVID again and it's a slightly different spike, then you've got a library of potential antibodies with their own little built-in mutations that might fit. And if one is found that fits, then that's the one that replicates. Um, It it turns into uh, the antibody producing cell and you get the benefit of that. So my concern was, does natural disease actually downregulate my immune system? And uh, even though I had mild infection, does it downregulate my immune response and cause me to not respond as well if I'm exposed again? So I figured I'd get the best of both worlds, natural infection, I've seen the entire genome, um, and also this uh, mRNA vaccine, which shows my body spike only and will cause it to remember having seen it before and um, trigger another good surge of of antibodies. So that's why I decided to. Um, I will say I'm on the fence about dose two because I am a runner and I'm not super eager to have 24 to 48 hours worth of uh, insane body shock after the second dose. But uh, in the end, I will probably go through with my appointment and get it um, because I'm kind of a type A personality and I would feel really badly um, canceling an appointment and not using a dose when it was there for me, but we'll just see how this goes. Um, I will also say, if this helps those who are vaccine hesitant and not to uh, to slam one vaccine or over the other or to promote one vaccine over the other, I get no remuneration, nothing. I am so small. Uh, such a tiny podcast with absolutely no ties to either of these companies. 
But my own personal impression in looking at the FDA briefing document was the Pfizer dose one versus dose two was more comparable. Whereas Moderna had myalgia was pretty low on dose one, myalgia is muscle pain, and myalgia popped up pretty high on dose two. So I think actually what's really going on is um, it's not that um, dose two is really bad for both vaccines, it's that you know, you get a reaction with Pfizer on dose one and dose two is about the same. So you're like, yeah, okay, had it with dose one, it's about the same on dose two. So it's not really memorable. It's not really distinguishable. But Moderna, I think, um, because people are not really very often getting myalgia on dose one and then they are getting it on dose two, I think they're going, holy crap, that was really, you know, a, a serious whopper on dose two. Um, but it's actually not all that different from Pfizer dose two. It's just both doses for Pfizer were about the same. So... If you don't want to be concerned about dose two being terrible, um, go with Pfizer, because you know the um, reaction profile, the reactogenicity is going to be about the same for both. If you'd rather have an easier time on dose one and you're on the fence and you don't think you're gonna get a dose two, um, and it'll take a lot to convince you to actually get a dose two, then get Moderna. Um, they're both offered, they're both great. They're made the same way, just slightly different formulation. So um, if, you, uh, if, if it will get you off the fence and move you toward vaccination to think, gosh, there's a, lower proportion of people had myalgia for Moderna in the clinical trials than, you know, with dose one. Maybe that's helpful information, so I'm sharing it. Uh, All right, so that's why to get the vaccine and how to convince yourself to get the vaccine. Um, So I suggested, you know, compare the two, compare your risks, um, think about the protection that you get from the vaccine, the opportunities to return to normal life. Um, what it might mean for your teen, what it means for the teachers in school to appreciate that more kids are vaccinated. Um, And then, you know, (laughs) find ways to coerce yourself into following through um, by just thinking about different uh, inflection points where where you might decide to just put it off another day. Maybe having an appointment would help you and where you might um, not go through with it for dose two. You know, if you know that you really want two doses, then maybe go with Pfizer and you know whatever happens on first dose, maybe something similar will happen second dose. If you're almost like convinced you're not going to get the vaccine at all unless um, you feel like you can reduce your likelihood of any reactogenicity as much as possible, then maybe consider Moderna. But again, this is is data from 20,000 people in clinical trials. Doesn't necessarily hold for real world experience. We now have 182 million doses of Pfizer administered. So when all of the um, side effects and the reactions are compiled sometime down the road, and we can actually see how 182 million people responded dose one versus dose two, we'll we'll likely find some slight differences compared to the first 20,000, right? Um, You might find this interesting. I did look at the subgroup analysis for the 16 and 17 year olds for Pfizer. And there were 53 kids who, in the clinical trial, who got the vaccine. Um, They had, I think 9% had um, pyrexia. I think that's elevated temperature. I'm not a clinician, I'm an epidemiologist. Um, But I believe that's what that is. Um, And then 2% had, uh, you know, like a car accident. So it's kind of interesting. My teen, who's very data conscious and a mathematician, said that his risk of having any kind of reaction at all from was higher with the vaccine than with the natural disease, and he was 100% correct. Um, it has actually been hard for me to find a person under 18 who had COVID, who had even 
over a 99.5 fever. So 9% having an elevated temperature over 38 Celsius is different, yes, than the disease. But it's short-lived, and um, I did tell my, my team, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, there are athletes who have actually had a hard time coming back from COVID. Now, I think that their anecdotal experiences are being discussed um, in a disproportionate way compared to their, their actual proportion of the population. Um, there's between 2 and 3 million known COVID cases in kids. Somewhere around 11% might have long COVID, it's estimated by the UK. Um, previously healthy athletes with no prior issues, no obesity, no overweight, no asthma, no diabetes, nothing, having trouble coming back for, you know, for weeks, that's unusual. Um, their cases are being discussed. I think it's helpful information for people to know, um, but I think we always need to be careful about uh, overselling those extreme cases um, just to convince somebody to get a vaccine. So that's where I am, squarely in the middle on that. Okay, that was topic one. Why to get the vaccine and how to get yourself to get it. Um, Topic two, I promised you I was actually kind of laughing out loud as a way to distract myself from being a hypochondriac here. I'm I'm two hours after post-vaccine and I do need to do some work. Um, So I took myself over to the National Safety Center Um, You can find that at injuryfacts.nsc.org, injuryfacts.nsc.org. And you can have a really nice time reframing your risk um, perceptions by looking around at all kinds of risks. (laughs) I know this sounds horrible, but it was a really useful exercise because honestly, I knew that, um, you know, my risk of having anaphylaxis was very, very low. Um, I think it was 11 in a million Um, whereas my risk of being in a car accident is shockingly high. Lifetime risk risk is in uh, 1 in 107. So like nearly 1% of us will die by car accident. Um, But again, that's lifetime risk. That's not one-year risk because this is the year for like all risks, right? Getting crammed into one year with COVID and the vaccine. (laughs) So uh, it's really kind of unfair to to push that into a one-year time horizon. Um, But it it is interesting anyway. A pedestrian accident is one in 588, and risk of death due to COVID right now in this country, um, and again, this is not age stratified, and I already told you this very age-sensitive thing, so bear that in mind, but um, the risk of dying due to COVID in the U.S. is one in 588, or um, 561,000 when I checked this out of 330 million people. Pedestrian accident, sorry, that is one in 543. So actually a little bit higher lifetime risk, whereas risk of dying from COVID in the US right now um, over the last year is one in 588. So you could go to National Safety Center and just kind of like look around it. I also don't particularly like enjoy, uh, I don't enjoy flying. And of course, I can look at the statistics, and I know the statistics, and I know it's extremely safe, but I found that interesting. I did go to sports and recreational injuries, and in the top left, you can take the count um, versus rate, and I did go with rate, injury rate per 100,000, and I thought that was interesting um, to scroll through, but if you leave it first in count, um, the top 10 are like actually exercise equipment. 
um, and then bicycles and accessories, then basketball just count. So that's got to be popularity of sports, right? Then football, then playground equipment, um, ATVs and mopeds, uh, mini bikes, then swimming pools, then soccer, then baseball, skateboards, and then trampolines. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Trampolines were was number eleven. Um, I was happy to see horseback riding um, down pretty far there, and it's right next to hockey. My kids play ice hockey. Um, if you turn this into injury rate, which I much prefer, that's per 100,000, um, you actually get the same... Skateboards are right over trampoline, but I believe you actually get the same order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Yeah. Um, so soccer... Baseball, softball, skateboards, and trampoline are the bottom four. The top four are exercise equipment, bikes and accessories, basketball and football. Um, and then horseback riding is like 13 per 100,000. Hockey is 11 per 100,000. At the bottom is barbecue grills. Uh, so if you actually um, split each of these open by age, you'll see that barbecue grills, um, stoves and equipment, that's for babies. The rest of them are, as you would expect, higher among the kids who are actually participating. So that helped me kind of reframe uh, risks a little bit. It was just interesting to look at. And what did I, what actually made me laugh out loud? I think it was being at the beach, actually ranked, being at the beach, picnic and camping equipment. So obviously being at the beach, that's, you know, that's roadways and um, riptides which, yes, I do teach my kids how to get out of, but I just hope they never find themselves in. Um, I am going to close with a pet peeve of mine um, because it's a study that's been cited a couple times, and it does relate to kids, and it, it does relate to severity of disease among kids. And, um, I, you know, I know, I know that the, the way this is being framed, because right now I'm talking about framing risks, the way this is being framed is perfectly understandable. The pediatrician who's been talking about this is really concerned that we are underemphasizing risk in kids. And so whenever he talks about risks related to kids, he's going to lean toward the side of, hey, be aware there are actually risks, but he's going to de-emphasize the caveats a little bit. Um, and he did it again today when I was listening to a podcast where he covered this. And so it's, it's a study, um, it's a cohort study and I'll put the link in uh, in the show notes, but it's a cohort study um, among kids who, and I really carefully looked at the, the methodology to get to this, and I'm actually working from memory now about a week later, but it was a study that looked at 20,000 kids, and the way you got into that denominator, and this is so important when you review studies, the way they got into the denominator is by having a discharge code related to COVID and so they either went to the ER or they went to the hospital. They came out of the hospital and their discharge code was flagged as COVID-related, okay? So that's how this electronic medical records claims-based study found them in the first place. So if you're a kid out in the community and you went to your pediatrician's office or you just got tested or, or whatever, you went to a, an acute care clinic, you never went to the ER, you're not in the study at all whatsoever. And so that's the first filter, okay? But this pediatrician who's emphasizing risk among kids did not mention that. Um, so these 20,000 kids, um, I would say are already 
going to be more severe cases of COVID because they their symptoms concerned their parents so much that they went to the ER. And then of those kids who went to the ER, um, 11, 12% were admitted to the hospital. And then among those kids who were actually admitted, about a third went to the ICU. And that part, the you know one quarter to one third was not too surprising. Um, but I know this particular pediatrician really looked at that 11% because it corroborated something else that he saw um, about six weeks ago from the UK. Remember the long COVID um, that I mentioned? That was also 11.7%, that there was some persisting symptom um, that was related to COVID and it could be fatigue, right? So just be aware that, um, you know, I, I agree that kids can be affected by COVID. I am a little worried about them. We did work really hard to make sure that we, by playing hockey, we were not introducing excess risks far and away above what they might experience out in a, you know, on their street playing with their buddies, because I think that's safe. Being outside is safe. In a hockey rink, you're indoors, right? Um, But their interactions are extremely, extremely brief on the ice. Um, So I wanted to, as much as I could, reduce risks such that they would be somewhat equivalent to just playing outside on the street, which is a much more prolonged interaction where they're actually talking to each other. Um, so I think for, for parents who have kids, I, I think I would stratify my concerns and the way I handle um, exposures for kids by dichotomizing them into the 15 and younger and the 16 and up. For 16 and up, you have a choice to make. You can start modifying the risk by getting a vaccine. You're you're not just looking at masks and, you know, staying away from sports or doing sports or, you know, going to school or not going to school. You you actually have another tool available to you. Um, And that's not as hard to manage. It's not as hard to remember um, as, hey, get your mask, hey, wear your mask, whatever. Um, It's one and done with a vaccine. You know, you get that dose and then three weeks later or four weeks later, you get another dose. Um, When Janssen comes back online, it might be perfectly suitable for teens and particularly boys. Um, And that would definitely be a one and done. So keep an eye out for that. And then for kids 15 and younger, their risk of severe disease, their risk of uh, long COVID, I think is still undetermined. But um, when you get, so I would say between, you know, age four and 15, because there, there is some additional risk among kids younger than one, and it starts to taper, hit you know a, a real lull down there by four, age four, and then really like stays very low until like 10, 11, 12. So I think between four and 15, where we don't have vaccines licensed yet, I think the, the, the risk is so low that you should be comfortable letting them play in certainly an outdoor youth sport, certainly going to playgrounds, um, certainly playgroups outside. Um, I would say if if they want to come inside and play a video game with a buddy for an hour, um, you know, maybe sit them six feet apart and get some cross ventilation in, you know? Um, But other than that, I think it's safe to treat them generally as kids. I think that the risks are pretty low. The benefits of socialization are very high. Um, with respect to schools, I think that, you know, the conversation around three feet versus six feet should also be modified by the fact that they are wearing masks and they're actually not talking, yelling, laughing all that much in school when they're in class. And that's when they aerosolize. So I do think that three feet is fine. 
um, and I do think it makes sense to get some ventilation in. I am not actually 100% behind lots of plastic everywhere. Um, I do think that we should make schools look a bit like uh, normal schools. I think when it comes to protecting teachers, maybe, um, maybe beneficial because they're having to interact with 27 kids, right? Or more. Um, and certainly for teachers who have concerns, if they want to use um, plastic barriers at their reading tables, if it makes it possible for them to go to work and feel less vulnerable, I think that's helpful, right? We're all dealing with anxiety. Um, but I do also think that for teachers who have had both vaccines, they're young, no comorbidities, um, right? I appreciate not all teachers are young without comorbidities, but for those who are, um, I think it's important for them to also start reframing risks as I've had to do for myself and think about how many of these um, risk mitigation things are really important and start like creeping back toward normal. Um, so for instance, I think I would probably think twice about having a plastic barrier between me and my students at a reading table because it is really hard to hear. Um, and if I'm wearing a mask and they're wearing a mask and I'm um, vaccinated, both vaccines, and I have no other comorbidities, I think I would probably um, prioritize, you know, a good teaching interaction over that very small um, additional benefit of the barricade. Because in reality, I've, I've watched in some of the videos and stuff, like people are putting their faces, uh, you know, down low where there's like a little pass-through place so they can hear better. And so they're getting closer anyway. Um, so in closing, I hope this is perceived to be a useful and honest and transparent way of dissecting and understanding data, how it's presented, why it's presented the way it is, how to personalize risk, how to think about it, um, how to have a rational conversation with yourself and try to keep a sense of humor. Um, I am going to forget right now as I close up this, this episode, the things that have made me laugh recently, but I've certainly been laughing a lot and uh, I have to thank my family and my friends for that. They have really been there um, for me when I have been obsessed with things. And I, I just, for all of you who are listening and have had to deal with my obsessions and my questions over the last year, know that I, I wish some of you are clinicians and working in Japan still and I can't just randomly call you and say thank you but know that I'm thinking about you and I so appreciate each of you and all of the folks who are you know providing vaccinations at FEMA clinics and convention center clinics and reaching out to their neighbors and you know my own neighbor standing in her driveway saying hey did you get it yet did you get it you're gonna be fine you're gonna be fine thank you to all of you um thanks for neighborly concern and if you have questions, please reach out to me. I have a million questions, and I think they're all worthwhile asking and answering. And I don't think anybody should be afraid to ask questions, nor raise questions. Um, I was that student in high school, in college, and in grad school who really, really wanted to understand. And I only found out like 20 years later that it was terribly annoying sometimes. Um, when I asked questions, when I because I got like a 98% and I wanted to really understand what I didn't get correct the first time because I was so worried that if I proceeded out past the exam that I got a 98% on, that 2% that I didn't fully understand was somehow going to be my undoing. Like I would make a bad decision based on that 2% lack of full comprehension. I was just that person. So I think any question is a good one. Bring it on. 
hey, have a good rest of your day and I'm going to work. All right, in closing, I'm here with our 16-year-old. So my first question for you was, did you feel like you could say no to the vaccine today? Yeah. You did, actually. So when you signed that thing, patient signature, that was your informed consent. You read all four pages, eight yeah. pages. And you, you actually felt like you could walk out of the pharmacy and not get it? Yeah. That's great. I'm happy to hear well, that. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to try and stop me. True. You are six foot tall and 210 pounds. Yeah. And yeah. You were also half asleep this morning because that was actually getting up really early for you. So are you aware that you got the shot? Hopefully. (laughs) So we were just talking, Sam and me here, about framing risks. And we were looking at that, my my website that I told you about, the National Safety Center. And Sam was curious to find where hockey was. Below volleyball, right? Yeah. And what did you just tell me about refrigerators? Oh, I just said there's probably been more people killed by refrigerators than by shark attacks. You think so? Because, yeah, we saw something about um, picnicking. Oh, yes, picnicking is hazardous. Picnicking picnicking is actually more hazardous than bowling or boxing. How do you get hurt in bowling? I don't know, and I'm surprised toboggan is so far down. How is boxing less than bowling? Right, how is that? (laughs) What's happening in bowling? I don't know do what's think? happening in boxing. All right, I need to make myself some soup or some grilled All right, cheese. Say, say goodbye to our listeners. Goodbye. No grilled cheese. Please, no grilled cheese. I haven't had grilled cheese in a week. I get some. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Sam's words of wisdom.